Well, hello. Thank you for, uh, for having us today. I appreciate the opportunity to visit with everybody and uh, hopefully you won't throw any rocks at me over my message. Um, it's gonna be a little different and I'm hoping that it's a practical way that we can help one another and uh, share life together and step into a spiritual realm together. Um, but I wanna start back to when I was a boy Believe it or not, my boys, I was actually a boy like you. Um, when I was back in England, uh, myself and my friends, we would go to a place that we called the Swamp. It was not Washington, D.C. Uh, it was actually on the grounds of the grammar schools, a couple of miles away from my home, and we would, we would go there because there was this treed area, and inside this treed area was basically a very large pond, uh, pretty deep and full of all kinds of interesting critters for, you know, little boys to go and play with and, uh, and, and experiment with, unfortunately. But we had a lot of fun at this, this place, and it was, um, it was kind of a, it was a, it was a safe place to us, but unbeknownst to the reality that was behind it, it really wasn't all that safe because we would climb trees and then we would try and figure out a way how we could traverse over the pond by jumping from tree to tree. Very safe exercise. Anybody done anything like this? Nobody's going to own up to it. Yeah. So, you know, the idea was to not fall and land in the pond, which those that were less athletic amongst us did, and it was a great source of entertainment for everybody else. Really pretty dangerous because it was a swampy type of area and there were roots and tree limbs that were underneath the water and you could land on those things. So it wasn't just, you know, all that, all that safe. At times the swamp could be quite deep, deeper than you could stand and, and have your head out of the water. And the danger, I'm sure, that we toyed with was uh, a lot more than we imagined. And maybe you've done some similar things yourself, but there was one particular winter, a really cold winter, and everything was frozen. There was snow on the ground for a very long time, and so we thought, hey, let's find out what cold weather does to our swamp. Because, you know, we had no idea that it would freeze. Of course we did. We wanted to see how much it had frozen. And so we got down there and my friend Andy, who was um, a lot more of a daredevil than I was on that day, decided that he needed to test the ice. So he threw a big log into the, the now frozen pond and, well, it didn't fall through. So it must be safe, right? It must be safe. So he starts walking out on the ice. And right as about the time he gets to the middle, the, you know on the TV shows when you see somebody and they're walking on the ice and the cracks start to appear and, and all of this drama takes place and you know they're gonna fall into the ice but they, then they finally do. This wasn't like that at all. He's just walking along and <laughs> just gone. And for a second I'm like, uh, what do I do now? It was just he and I were there. And he, 
pops back up and he's just flailing around and of course it's very cold for this ice to be frozen at all, but not as thick as he thought it was. And so I figured out that I could clamber along this, this limb and get close enough and he could kind of panic enough his way over <laughs> that I grabbed his arm and then he kind of just grabbed a hold of the limb and we, we just kind of stumbled our way back to the shore, the shore, the edge of the pond. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty dangerous and he could have drowned that day if he had gone and decided to do this by himself. And so we made our way back to our house and, you know, we were only about a mile or two away from my house. And within a few minutes, my mom had got him some change of clothes. He was drying off and then she was plying him with plenty of hot tea and, and uh, jam on toast. Anybody had jam on toast with hot tea? It's very good. I can't do that anymore. So yeah, and, and he was fine. His, his mom came and got him a little while later. No hypothermia, really wasn't in, in there that long. But still, a dangerous moment that could change a life in an instant. Why did I tell this story? Well, it serves as an analogy of sorts of what I'm gonna talk about today. There's lots in, the, in, in this analogy. There's, of course, how we help one another when we're in trouble. There's uh, the dangers that we're unaware of that can happen to us, that we need help in. And, and then helping one another to survive those dangers and those struggles as well. But there's also an element here that is, uh, is pretty obvious. And I'll just ask the question. It's an obvious question. Why did my friend not like being submerged in ice cold water? Cold, can't breathe. Why can't he breathe? Because he can't, he doesn't have any gills or fishy things. He has no gills or fishy things. <laughs> Although he could do some fishy things like that. But yes, exactly. So he is a mammal, right? He is made to walk on the ground and breathe the air. And it's pretty obvious to us, and we know that, and we see that naturally. There are other creatures, however, that are in this swamp that are not like us. And in the springtime, my friends and I would go back to the swamp and we would gather up some of these creatures and put them in little glass jars, which I'm sure they loved, and we would take them back to our house and over the course of a few weeks, watch them grow into something that they weren't before. Watch them transform into something new. Anybody guess what I'm talking about? Frogs. From tadpoles to frogs. What kind of creatures are they? Anybody know the technical term? Amphibians, that's right. So we've got frogs, we have toads, we have newts, and salamanders, I think. Is that right? That are amphibians. And they can survive in water and out of the water. And in fact, kind of need both environments to survive. Amphibians. We are not amphibians. 
or are we? Are we amphibians? In fact, I am an amphibian. Now that does not mean that I have fishy things <laughs> and gills that suddenly magically appear when I touch the water. Remember that old TV show, The Man from Atlantis? Anybody remember that? I'm not one of those, and I can't swim that well either. And I don't look at that good in a bathing suit. So. But I'm an amphibian in a different way. So the, the word from the Greek, the strict definition of the word amphibian is two words, two ancient Greek words coming together. Amphi meaning both. And bios, we know what bios is. Life, right? Or both worlds or both uh, types of life. So amphibios is the origin of amphibious. And when applied to frogs and newts, it means, of course, living in water and on the land. But when applied to us, it means living in the physical world, which we are here right now, and the spiritual world. And so we are amphibians. Now, I didn't come up with this idea or this term. I, I've, I've heard it from another ministry that uses this, but I think it's... I think it's really useful for us to think about that. And unfortunately, the way we are right now, we need the physical. And fortunately, we have also the spiritual. So we do live in these both worlds. And, and we need both worlds desperately. We need both elements of life in us. We don't tend to think about it this way, though, do we? We tend to think all physical most of the time because we feel it. We inhabit a body that, well, as we get older, it, it lets us know it's there. We, we inhabit a world in which we can touch and, and move things, and we have to do those things in order to live. And so we get up and we do life. We get up in the morning and we feed ourselves. We need that physical nourishment. and then. We maybe go on to work, and then we come home, and we rest, and we need to take care of our physical needs. And so we, we have all of those, and a lot of our life is orientated around obtaining the resources necessary to keep ourselves alive, physically. You could argue most of our life. All of our work, all of our eating, and then our sleeping is all to maintain this physical life. And so it's easy to allow the spiritual bios, the spiritual life, to maybe take a separate or, or lower place in our life and in, in our day-to-day. -day. And we can neglect that spiritual world that we should be inhabiting as amphibians. And this is what I want to reorientate ourselves today around this concept to explore what it means to be a Christian amphibian and maybe one little slice, one little part of dwelling in the spiritual world more fully and how we can help one another when doing that. So how is it that we know that we have this dual life in us? 
as baptized believers who have received the Holy Spirit, how do we biblically know that we fall into this category of being amphibians? Well, we can start in many different scriptures, but I've chosen 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. There's a lot of things in here, and we've read this passage, many of us, for how many years? And it's easy to, to kind of lose some awe for what he is talking about here. There's a lot in here. We're the temple of God. We're holy. We're a holy place. We're a spiritual place. And he has filled us with his spirit. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, a little further on in verse 19, he says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So we are this physical being and we are this spiritual being and we live in two dimensions, the physical world, as it were, and the spiritual world. We are this temple of God. And, and we're very familiar with this. Keep the Feast of Tabernacles a few times and you start to understand how we are this earthly tabernacle, this dwelling place for God. But we kind of take it for granted when we skip over these scriptures. Yep, we've heard this before. This is a shockingly powerful statement. And if we think about how Paul, when he presented this, this was radical, this was new, this was earth-shattering for the audience. Because up until the time of Jesus Christ and the establishment of the church and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, what was the imagery that they had where God dwelled? Where did he live? In the tabernacle or the temple. In the tabernacle or the temple. So now he's saying he doesn't live there anymore. He's moved to a new residence inside of each and every one of us. Think of that. Meditate on that for a minute. Helps you understand the gravity of what Paul was trying to communicate to us. Up until this time, they had no concept that God would dwell, live inside of each one of us. A human being with all of their flaws and all their weaknesses and all their brokenness. And here, God is dwelling within us. It was probably considered blasphemy to say this. And we just take it for granted today. And I, I, don't, I don't say that as an accusation. We, we do that sometimes. And that's why we're reminded to read the scriptures and, and see the astonishing things that God is doing, placing his divine life in us and turning us into amphibians. And when we stop and think about it today, in our life today, 
This should lead us to wonder more about this and to ask more questions about this. And I think, to me, the most significant question that, that I would ask and continue to ask is what does it mean? What does it mean to us that, that God dwells in us, that we are these creatures of two worlds? What does this mean? And not even just in a larger sense, but what does it mean to me? What does it mean to you? What does it mean for your life? How you live your life? Do you consider yourself an amphibian? When Paul uses the word temple in the Greek, he's referring to the temple structure, the whole thing. And you remember that there's, there's several parts, right? There's at least three main parts in that temple. The tabernacle was the same way. There was the outer court. There was the holy place. And then there was the holiest place. And we, we have, of course, all the imagery and all the accoutrements and the, the tremendous depth that's in those. And we can't go into that today. But we are like that. We have this outer court and this outer world that we, we live in. And then, then we maybe have the close circle of family and loved ones that are in that next layer, that next level of the, the holy place. And then we have the place where God resides. The holiest place of all. The holy of holies. I just want to ask you a question. How often do you go into the Holy of Holies where God dwells inside of you? That's a deep question for us. So, here's the struggle we have with this, right? How can God dwell in this place when we can be so easily drawn out in in anger or bitterness or jealousy or lust or doubt and fear? Did I say doubt? How is it that God can do this and dwell within this tabernacle? Does that start to lead us to doubt? As I said twice. Is he really in there? Did that baptism really take? Did I really receive the laying on of hand? Did I really receive the Holy Spirit? I've talked with people that have said exactly that. We start to doubt. But then we have to remember, what was it like on the Day of Atonement in the tabernacle when the priest went in there and he went into that holiest place. Why did he go into that holiest place? Why did he spray the blood around in the holiest place? Because there was sin there too. And somehow we've gotten to ourselves to this place where we think that, well, God can't come anywhere near our sin. Really? He's dwelling in us, in the the central core of our being. And just like with that tabernacle, he had to cleanse the tabernacle. He's cleansing us. 
isn't he? Day by day. Moment by moment. Paul expresses these struggles that we have. He had them himself. Romans chapter 7 and verse 14, he said, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that's what I do. It just, don't we feel this? We feel this with Paul. And I'm so grateful that he was willing to share this. So we don't have this, this vision that Paul was the perfect Christian and there's no way we could follow him. He endured the same struggle. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will, I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. It's interesting. It's like he's wrestling with this as he's writing the letter. He says it like almost four different ways, repeating it again, trying to figure out how this dynamic works and how God can dwell in him and he be this spiritual being inside this physical world and have this struggle. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the mind I serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Wrestling between these two bios, these two lives that we have, between our two natures. We are amphibians, and we have an internal war inside of us. He says, warring against the law of his mind. So there's a battle inside of us, and we live in a world that is also at war and attracting us from the outside, raging this war over our souls. We have this physical nature with all its flaws, with all of its brokenness, a nature that is condemned by the law. But wait, Paul says that this is warring against the law of his mind. What is that? What's the law of his mind? It's the law of God, which is spiritual. He just said at the beginning, the law is spiritual. So he's, he's tying the mind and the spirit together here. He's a spiritual being called to inhabit a spiritual realm. And then he says, with the mind I serve 
the law of God, which I think is another way of saying that with the spiritual life, with the spiritual bios in him, he serves God's law. He practices that. That's his desire and how to live. He serves the law of God while the body is still subject to the law of sin, still condemned by the law of sin. How do we know that's true? Every day we look in the mirror, a little bit older, and we are progressing towards the end of the sin that is in this body. He goes on to help us understand that we are amphibians living in this physical world, but also having the power to live a whole new spiritual way. And that whole new spiritual dimension that I think most of us have hardly experienced. Because it's so easy, as I said at the beginning, to get preoccupied with the things of life and this physical realm that we live in. And I'm in that same category. He says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is now, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He was flesh. He came in the flesh, in the likeness of our flesh, but without that sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He made us to be able to be amphibians. He made us like himself. Do you realize that? that how we live now with the Spirit of God in us is just like how Jesus lived. Of course, the difference, one difference being he did it without sin. But otherwise, we are now as he was on the earth, fully God, fully divine, and fully man because we have the divine life in us. Does that sound a little heretical? It's kind of shocking, isn't it? He made us to be that way, though. He made us to be like him, and we're like him now as he was then, and we're going to be like him as he is now in the kingdom of God, fully resurrected and glorified, and he's going to share that glory with us. That's what he promises. He has covered and processed every sin. He has paid the price for every wrong. He is born in his body, in his power, in his blood, every spiritual and phys physiological wound and allows us, if we will take it, to become healed. And if we accept it, to become holy dwelling places of God. 
this is amazing. This is the work that God wants to do. Verse 5 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. So let me ask you a question about that verse. What does it mean to live according to the Spirit? What does it mean to set our minds on the things of the Spirit? What is that exactly? I mean, we need to know, right? Because we're faced with this presentation, he says, well, you can live according to the flesh or you can live according to the Spirit. And where you set your mind is where you're living. He gives us a clue. So it's really important to know what it looks like on a daily basis to walk in the Spirit. How do we walk in the Spirit? What does all of this mean? Well, one of the first things, I asked my wife this as we were driving up, well, what do you think it means, just putting her on the spot? And she brought up, well, it's the fruits of the Spirit. So you may have been thinking the same thing, that 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 is what is setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. So let's take a look at that passage. Let's turn over to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified uh, the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. So Paul is clearly tying the fruits of the Spirit to living in the Spirit. Very similar language to Romans 8, but not exactly the same. And there might be a reason for this difference. Setting our minds on the things of the Spirit is slightly different, at least in my mind, to walking and living in the Spirit. I think there's a difference here. One is an objective and the other is an outcome. So today I set my mind, to, uh, my focus to come here, to travel here, to fellowship with you and to, to be here for Sabbath services. It's what I set my mind to. It's what I purposed myself to. But I would not have gotten here without what? Taking actual action and steps to travel here and get here and come in the building and be here. So, you know, there's there's some subtle differences here that I think are important. And the reason I bring it up because I think it goes to the work that God is trying to do in our hearts 
as this dwelling place that he's in, in this deep, holy place inside of us, I think this has to do with that. We're all familiar, I think, with the concept of trying to do or be better. Has anybody tried to be better at something? Yeah, we've all tried to hopefully be better at something. At some point we were worse at walking and now we're better at walking, right? I mean, there's plenty of things throughout our life as we grow from a child all the way to adult that we're improving and developing. But what about trying to be better with a character flaw or an issue in your heart? Like trying to be better about not getting angry. Has anybody tried that? Or not being judgmental? Or, you know, we could go down the list, couldn't we? How well does it work? How well does it work to not, to just decide, I'm not going to be angry? <laughs> it doesn't work, does it? It just doesn't work. Are we really not getting angry? Or are we just getting better at hiding that we are angry? Right? Are those two things the same? They're not. Now, it might feel like, well, at least I didn't, you know, rip their head off and yell at them, right? And that, that's better. But when are you saying that? Later, when you get home and you're telling somebody or telling yourself, you still got angry about whatever that situation was. And so all we're doing is we're stuffing it down inside. And that makes us feel oh so good, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. It just pushes an emotion into a place that is unhealthy and is not really resolving why is it that we get angry at situations when there is no cause for it, when there's no cause for that particular response. So it's not having the fruit of the Spirit of being peaceful by pretending to others that we're not angry. So obviously I'm going a little deeper here than what we're presenting to the world. We're not in the, inner, the outer court anymore. We're moving into the holy place where we reside with our emotions and our emotional responses. Just in the same way Acting patient is not actually the same as being patient. You can still feel that frustration welling up inside as you're waiting for this person that's stuck at a green light to move forward, right? Is, is now long enough for me to honk the horn? Is it a long honk or just a little short, more friendly honk, right? And that, that frustration can so easily build out of a moment's notice, but we might be presenting to somebody in the car that we're, we're perfectly patient, but we're not really. Acting patient might seem better. Maybe if I act long enough, I mean, I, I've heard the phrase, fake it till you make it. It sounds good, but I don't think that's really the way it works. 
it can be useful in a situation to not, you know, get angry and fly off the handle and bump the car in front of you to make them move. But it's not the same. Acting patient, oddly enough, leads to frustration because you're not really patient. It leads to anger and then it leads to acting out. Sometimes in a moment, you're acting out in anger in a moment that had nothing to do with why you were angry at all. I know I'm the only one that's ever done that. Not to mention, it's not kind to ourselves. It's not kind. How does that, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good. And it doesn't put us in a good state of mind, a right frame of mind to, to go through life with, with hopefully some joy and some, some happiness and where we're living. So what it leads us to is a term that I've learned that is called prohibitive conscience. Where all we're doing is suppressing our emotional states. We're not managing it, we're suppressing it, putting it in a box, thinking it'll stay in the box. It doesn't stay in the box. It just doesn't. It leads to feelings ultimately, for example, with anger or really any major emotion. You just keep stuffing it in that box. The only place it can come out, the only place it can come out because it has to come out, is in self-condemnation and self-attacking. And we're the ones that are bad for having the anger or the frustration or whatever it may be. It's a strange quirk of our nature. So acting kind, acting good and faithful is not sufficient. It might seem to help in the short term, but is no substitute for being kind being good and being faithful. Isn't it just really just a beautiful thing when you hear of somebody needing some help and so you just help and you don't actually have to think, I probably should help, right? That we're just motivated by a kindness and we can now do it free and unencumbered from, well, what, what does that look like and how should I do that? And, we can just do it and give kindness or goodness and faithfulness. When we do these things, as I mentioned before, we're suppressing what is called a conditional emotional response. A conditioned, rather, emotional response. But what caused the conditioning? Why do we get angry? Why do we get frustrated? Why do people lie? Why any one of these areas in our heart? Why do we lust after things? Why do we get jealous? Why do we do these things? Why do we have these emotions in our heart? What is that about? What's happening? More often than not, it's a, conditional, it's a conditioned emotional response. We've been conditioned by the world to act that way. And remember, we live in a fallen world with 
a bunch of fallen people in the world, no matter how much we love one another. You might be interested to know that by the time that we reach the age of seven, seven years old, the conditioning is in place. Before we even know what's going on, our conditioned emotional responses have been set. They've been set by our parents, by our siblings, uh, by a larger you know, group of relatives called the family of origin, friends, teachers, all of the people that impact us as we're growing in that first seven years of life. So by the time we reach seven years old, it's set in our con conditioned emotional responses. It feels a little depressing, doesn't it? Because how much do you know at seven years old? How much can you parse of that? You can't. And th this is why we see you know, little toddlers, you take something from them, and it's the end of the age. I mean, this wailing and gnashing of teeth, and it's, it's right, it's, it's exaggerated. And as we grow and develop, we like to think we've learned to manage those emotions. But maybe not. <laughs> we've just learned to suppress them better. Because society has told us, well, you don't, it's good to share. You need to share. You know, and don't show that you don't want to share. I don't want to share. And how easily can we all do that? I'm not trying to shame us today. We're all in this together. So as early as seven years old. And then as a side, there's now a significant body of work that proves that certain levels of childhood trauma, whether it's something that happened to us or something that should have happened to us and been given to us and wasn't, that can lead to health, physical health conditions, autoimmune conditions and cancer at hundreds of times the rate that you would normally experience that in the general population. All because of what can happen before seven years old. It's called um, the ACEs score, if you want to look that up. And it's adverse childhood events uh, scoring. And you can actually evaluate yourself and see where you might be. It's surprising how little, relatively, you know, you think of somebody's live life that you know and you think all these terrible, disastrous things have happened to them, and that, that is true, but it's easy to dismiss our own journey and how just some of that score can actually change our health outcomes in life. But even for those of us that have not reached those levels, our conditioned emotional response really make life hard. And we've all met people that, that are really suffering from this. Maybe you know somebody, I'm picking on anger today, maybe you know somebody that's constantly angry. It's just right under the surface there the whole time. I, I know somebody like that who is a generous, kind, caring person, but this anger is under the surface and comes out in, in, in times that you wouldn't imagine and in ways that don't make sense. How does it affect their life? It makes life hard. 
It makes it really difficult to be who we were supposed to be. It negatively affects how we relate to others, how successful we are in our careers, how we conduct our lives, even how we, we morally choose to live our life, and, of course, our spiritual condition. Of course, that's affected by those things. So if we act out of our conditioned emotional responses, and one of those responses is anger, we will be known as an angry person. Maybe not a lot of fun to be around. Don't be around them when they get some bad news. That's kind of a mess. But, as Paul tells us, if we set our mind toward living in peace, if we do the things necessary to obtain that peace, we will arrive at a spiritual place of walking in peace. Even if we have suffered from that anger, we'll naturally have a new response of the Christ life working in us. So how do we get to this place where we can obtain this kind of godly peace if we are this angry person? How do we do that? And of course, I'm picking on anger, but we could take anything that we struggle with in life and bring these tools to bear. So how do we do this? How do we, how do we live as amphibians? How do we step into this spiritual dimension and bring the peace of God, the fruits of the Spirit? How do we rein them into us? Well, firstly, we have to have an intervention. And that's become a very popular word, right? People in, having an intervention, maybe a, a loved one is suffering from drugs or alcohol or whatever it may be, and the, the family, the friends, stage an intervention and persuade them to go and get some help. And that, that's beautiful, and maybe sometimes that works. It doesn't always work, but sometimes it can. Maybe it's similar to that. An intervention into the brokenness of our spirit, a place of woundedness that caused us to develop this anger in the first place. You know, one of the things that we've learned about how our, how our minds work and, and how our relationships work within families is that we can oftentimes become victim of something that our parents themselves struggled with. And so maybe that anger is an inherited from a, a dad that was angry all the time. And that's been identified as a coping me mechanism. And we move forward in that. There are many different ways in which we can get that into us. So first, we need to understand what caused that? Well, where, where are we going? If we're asking ourselves this question, where are we going? Maybe back to some time before we were seven years old. Anybody remember everything that happened when they were you know, one, two, three, five, seven. No. We can remember some things, and some of us may be more than others, but we can't remember everything. And in fact, sometimes events can happen to us and we don't remember them for a reason. And that's probably God's grace in some ways. But we need to get to the core. Why? 
if we're the angry person, why are we struggling with this anger, this bitterness against the world and against people in the world? We need to allow God in. And that sounds, well, that's easy to say, Matt. How do we allow God in? Isn't he already inside of us? Yeah? But he doesn't go where he's uninvited, does he? What does Jesus say? He says he stands at the door and knocks. He's asking for permission to come in. And there are rooms in our heart that are locked. And he's knocking on the door. How do we open that door? Well, one of the tools that I've learned about is really found in in James chapter 5 and verse 16. This is a scriptural process that we, you know, we've read this uh, many times. This, this actually, in Tulsa, this is our scripture right next to our prayer requests. We see this every day in Tulsa, every Sabbath. We, we see this scripture, James chapter 5, verse 16. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, let's look at this passage a little deeper, though. Because what you're doing here is now setting your mind, setting your heart, your spirit towards peace and obtaining that fruit of the spirit. For our angry man who recognizes that he's having these unhealthy responses, if he does this and follows this and his, his friend, his brother or sister in Christ can help him in this process. Now, we might look at this and say, well, I just come to you and I say, hey, I'm struggling with anger. Uh, it keeps coming out in meetings at work. I'm yelling at everybody. My employees are quitting. And, you know, here's the situation. I don't want to do this anymore. Oh, I'm so sorry, man. I'll pray for you. And we may be real, we may be genuine, we go home that night and we pray for him. Doesn't that feel like there's something missing? It doesn't oftentimes feel enough, does it? It doesn't feel enough to me. If he was saying, hey, I've got no food in the house and I've got no money and my bank account got wiped out, I'm, I'm going to starve tonight, can, can you help me. We would do something more with that person. So what I'm proposing here, which we can all do, because it doesn't need some super strength. It doesn't need some special skill. It doesn't need anything other than Christ in us and the Spirit of God dwelling in us. This is a tool we can all do for one another. So our angry man comes to us, a trusted brother or sister, and he's opening himself up. He's vulnerable about what he is confessing. James says, confess your missteps, your failings, your your sins, and where you're struggling. Confess them to one another. Now, I don't think he's saying, stand at the front of the church and tell everybody what's going on. But he's talking about going to an individual that is trusted who is spiritual, who you know will keep your confidence and who you know cares about you. 
He sees, he sees that his response, his anger is inappropriate and wrong. And then that brother and sister, it, when, he, when the, James says, pray for one another, the word for can actually be translated as over. Over. So it's not the brother goes away after telling you this. It's like, hey, let's step over here. Let's sit over here. Let, let us pray over you. When else do we do that? We do that when we ask for healing, right? When we're asking God for healing and we have an anointing and somebody prays over us. And I think that is really key to this because we're involved. And the Spirit of Christ Jesus, the Spirit of the Father that dwells in us, by that process is enable, able to work through us. This is something we can do. So we pray over us, pray over him. And then we do something. We invite God into this space. We invite him. We ask him to come into the place where we are. In fact, to bring us into the place where he is in that holy of holies inside of our brother, inside of us too. And we ask God to tell us the truth. And we can expect an answer. He's given us this process. We can ask him to reveal to our brother or sister in Christ who is struggling with something. What is the truth about this situation? It may be a sin. It may be something that they've done. Yep. And you need to ask for forgiveness for that. That might be very hard. It may be something that was done to them. It may be an experience that comes to mind. And God can bring some truth about that. You know what? That wasn't your fault. You didn't actually need to take the blame for that situation. There's so many different variables, of course, in everybody's life. But we ask God to bring truth, forgiveness if it's needed, and then healing, real spiritual healing in that place. We can do this for one another because we're not doing anything but being a conduit for the work of God. There's a phrase that I really like that I've, I've learned in, in pastoral counseling training that it, it is that we are wounded in community. You think about that. We're wounded in community because people do things to us, right? On purpose or, or accidentally. And, and, and people with circumstance can hurt us. And so because of that, God requires that we get healing in community. Because not only are we getting healing, we're also engaging in relationship and can regain trust that is so often missing in our relationships. This sounds mystical, right? I mean, this kind of sounds a little, you know. Somebody said, you know, I didn't have to wear a jacket because this is a progressive church. So maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe this feels a little bit better. It's just hot. It's just hot, yeah. But this is, Maybe you haven't heard this before, but I think this is what this scripture is about. 
This is about praying over one another and entering into a place, the spiritual world, the spiritual dimension. And, it, and you know, it sounds mystical. But this is God. He is mystical. He is otherworldly, isn't he? And we're learning more and more about him as we progress in life with him. He is spiritual, trying to help us understand how he lives in this other dimension and preparing us to step fully into that, that new bios, that new life and that new dimension. Why does this work? Well, James tells us, because the effective work, which is the word used there, the effective work of prayer of a righteous person, made righteous by Jesus Christ, made righteous by, the, by God dwelling in us, that work is effective and powerful, which what avails means. It works because the Spirit of God is in us as believers. It works because God enters into it and takes us there in the holiest place of our heart. I like it the way the NLT puts it in this same, same verse. It says, confess your sins to each other and pray for, or remember, over each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Who wants wonderful results? Yeah. Can you pray over me in everything? We want wonderful results. We want new life, right? We want that new life bios. We want to be transformed into that life to come. So is there a place where you can help with this? Can you be that conduit, that loving, caring brother and sister in Christ? Can you be that trusted confidant to, to pray over someone in that vulnerable space and ask God to bring the truth, ask God to bring the healing right there, not later. Don't have to wait right now. I had a really strange experience happen to me one time. It wasn't in regards to spiritual, emotional condition, but I was at class, our, our pastoral counseling class, and uh, uh, the, the, the minister that leads it, he's like, heard that I was sick, and I'm kind of, I wasn't feeling great. I had an ear infection from, from allergies. And he just kind of stopped what he was doing and came over and stuck his hands on me and just started praying. It's like, why wait? Let's do it now. And of course, I know we do that for physical healing. But we can do that for spiritual healing for one another. I've been a recipient of this process, and I've helped others in this process. And it works, because God works. He works in us. Is there a place in your life where you need this help? That is probably the most vulnerable, vulnerable question you can ask. Is there a place in your life, a struggle in your life, 
that you can take to a trusted brother or sister and have them enter into this space with you and pray this prayer that brings wonderful results. The second step in this process is dependent upon the first, but it's still really important to follow. Once we've received or started to receive healing in our broken and wounded spiritual places, we must then do what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 20. He says, kind of breaking into the thoughts here, he said, but you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. This is what we call having a considered emotional response. Having a renewed mind, no longer operating out of those conditions that made, let's say, our, our angry friend that we've been talking about act out of anger. Those were those uh, conditioned emotional responses. Now, when God brings healing to that place, we are able to step away a little bit and consider the situation. Does it really call for the anger that, that we used to just be triggered on and just move into? Does it really call for that? Or can we now consider our emotional response? Maybe it's just slightly irritating. That's a lot better than the anger maybe that we went to. Maybe it's just a little bit frustrating. And maybe we can now have peace in that moment instead of the anger that we had before. And receiving that healing, that previous step, that critical step, right, that, that allows us the space. We're no longer reacting. And it allows us the space to even have a thought. Anybody just been so angry that they just went straight there and didn't even think about any you know, parameters <laughs> or any actions and whether they're good or not. I think probably we've all done that. Now we have the space to consider our actions and be renewed in our mind. You know, without uh, deliberate care and deliberate um, focus like this, it takes seven years for our neural passageways to be reconfigured. So if, if we have struggled with anger, or if we have struggled with any of, of the, the sins that we have, if we've struggled in those places without specific care, without God's intervention, and without deliberate, considered responses, it will take seven years to maybe get to a healthier place. But much less time if we are deliberate and focused and considered in our emotional responses. We can just take that second, that 30 seconds. I mean, 10 seconds in the mind can be a whole dream, can't it? We can 
do so many things and consider so many things in just a few seconds and then give us the freedom to act in a healthy way. Not suppressing, not burying, not putting it in a box for it to come out later, but processing it and moving in a healthy way. This is what Paul means by being renewed in our minds and taking control in the Spirit of God that's in us over our emotional responses. Healthy, peaceful, and calm responses make good, logical decisions. I like being logical. The outcome is much better for me when I'm logical. Sometimes I'm illogical, driven and pushed by those emotions. And that tells me, ah, there's a place. There's a new place that needs God's attention and his care and his healing. These are the practical steps. They're real. We can do these things and help one another. In fact, we're supposed to. I read a book one time that, that really pointed out that the whole psychological community, all the professional psychotherapists that we have, psychiatrists, we have them because the church has abdicated this simple responsibility. Now, there are, of course, sometimes very serious, not just psychological, but maybe neurological things. But most of what we deal with with life, we can help one another with. We're the church. It's what we're called to do. These are practical steps we can take to encourage and support one another. This is why God pulled us together to get healthy, to be healed, to turn us into amphibians, to be spiritual and live spiritual while we tolerate the physical and wait for our change. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 25, he says, Therefore, putting away lying. How do we do that? When we get to the root cause of the lying. Why do we have to make ourselves sound better than we think we are? Where does that come from? I had a cousin that I couldn't believe a single word that he ever told me because his stories were so amazing and so well told and they were all lies. <laughs> and I'm like, how do you go through life like this? What caused that? Put away that lying. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor we are members of one another. We're members together. We're one another. We're connected by the Spirit of God that created all things. Be angry? Okay. He said we can be angry. But do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer. Why the comp compulsion to steal? Why is that there? Where did that come from? How do we get to the, the healing there? We enter into that prayer with God and with our brother and sister in Christ. Why do we do that? But rather, let him labor, working with his hands what is good. After healing comes 
a considered emotional response instead of whatever caused the, 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 the motivation to steal now is a motivation to work, to be productive. These are all the responses of healing from God. That he may have something to, to give to him who has need. Look at that. Now we can even give to others. And that is something that we can also look at as a fruit of the Spirit. It's just by getting healing ourselves. It enables us to give to others and enter into spaces with others for their healing, physical or material or spiritual needs. It gives us the freedom to do that. That he may have something to give him who is in need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary uh, edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. What do you imagine grieving the Holy Spirit of God looks like? I would say there's two things that come to my mind. One is not letting him work through you, not letting God work through you. Grieving his spirit. Let us go where he tells us to go. Let us do out of faith and trust in him that we can help one another. And then, maybe you're grieving the Holy Spirit, grieving God's spirit, is not getting the healing that we need and being too afraid to go into those places. He hasn't given us the spirit of fear, right? He didn't give us that. He gave us the spirit of, of that strength, fearlessness, and a sound mind. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. When we do these things, and they are not complicated things, they're simple, but they are hard to do. But when we do these things, we're not just living in the world we're not just living in this physical life. We are being amphibians. Just one little part of being an amphibian is caring and being spiritual with one another and entering into the work of the Holy Spirit with one another. When we do these things, we are being Christian amphibians. We don't have to have gills and we don't have to have fishy things. But we can live in another world, in a spiritual world, with God and with one another, producing the fruits of the Spirit. <sighs> don't we want those fruits? I've been on a diet lately that I don't have fruit anymore. <laughs> I miss fruit but I miss the fruits of the Spirit even more when I don't have them. 
need the fruit of the Spirit. And when we have that, we become more divine in the process, don't we? We become more and more like Jesus because we become more healed. And also we become more of a healer with his work through us, being that conduit for his healing process, allowing the Christ life to work in us just as Jesus told us to be. Not in the world, not of the world, but in the world, being amphibian.